third part of the Summa. Let's just start by looking at the prologue. We haven't looked at prologues much, actually. You can do a whole study of the Summa just by looking at prologues, um, because he gives you a lot of the structure. But, we, but I just want you to see what he, what he says here, because the third part's interesting. For as, the prologue, for as much as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to save his people from their sins, as the angel announced, showed unto us in his own person the way of truth, whereby we may attain to the bliss of eternal life by rising again, it is necessary in order to complete the work of theology that after considering the last end of human life and the virtues and vices, ah, prima secunda secunda secunda, there should follow the consideration of the Savior of all and the benefits bestowed on him, uh, by him on the human race. Considering this, we must consider the Savior himself, the sacraments by which we attain salvation, and the end of immortal life by which we attain, which we should attain by the resurrection. He never wrote that third part of the third part. Concerning the first, do we have another one? Is this true? Yeah. No. Concerning the first, a double consideration occurs. The first about the mystery of the incarnation itself, whereby God was made man for our salvation. The second about the things that were done and suffered by our Savior, i.e. God incarnate. So. This is the most important book in the Middle Ages, one of the most important books ever written about Jesus. I mean, Aquinas' third part of the Summa is primarily a book about who Jesus is. And then it's also one of the most masterful treatises on the sacraments, although he died while he was, well, he stopped writing and then soon after died while he was writing the treatise on the sacraments. He never wrote the, the section on the eschatological life, although we have that, his thinking on that when he was younger from his commentary on the sentences. Sometimes there's a thing called the supplementum, which if you buy a summa is attached, which is that they took the, the stuff he didn't finish, they took the sections from the early writing on the sentences and they collated it together in an ordered way so it met with the kind of structure of the summa. So you can read him on those questions, but you're reading Aquinas as a younger man and earlier in his theological career. Okay. Now where does he start? Um, okay, so just, sorry, to say one more word about the prologue. So remember, we've looked at the fact that theology is really a science about God, the Holy Trinity, that the human being is made for happiness, that happiness consists ultimately in the vision of God, and that, and that human acts <clears throat> are meant to ultimately be structured by the wisdom that leads us back to God through faith and the other virtues. And now we look at how Christ is the way. Christ is the way back to the Father, the way to the homeland, the patria in Latin, uh, the place of rest, of being with God for eternity. And thus God became man so that we might be united with God. So he starts then in question one on the fittingness or the fitness of the incarnation. Um, covenantia in Latin, from which we get the word convenient, the conveniency, the fittingness of the incarnation. Now why do you think he starts right away with the question of why God became the fit? The mo it's, it's famously called the question of the motives of the incarnation. Why did God become human? Why does he start there? The main reason he does this, arguably, is Aquinas is a theologian seeking intelligibility. So he asks questions, and the questions he asks are usually about the four causes. And the first thing he asks is about the final cause. Because, the, as he said, the final cause is the cause of causes. Why did God bother to become human? Then we'll look at what it is for God to be human. But let's first look at why he did it. If we look at why he did it, what his motive is, we'll understand sort of what's going on at the base of everything. And so, teleology. Why are you doing this? What are you up to? Where are you going? What is God doing? Why did he become human? That's a kind of a doorway portal of entry into intelligibility. And, of course, that's a move, really, in some ways, from the posterior analytics. 
you can ask if a thing is, why, what it is, and why it is. And here he's asking the why question, and then he'll ask the what question. Okay. Well, it would seem, whether it's fitting that God should become incarnate, well, it would seem not, because God is uh, eternal, and he shouldn't be temporal. He's infinite, he shouldn't be finite. I answer that to each thing that is befitting, which belongs to it by reason of its nature. Thus, to reason befits man. Uh, by the way, for those of you who are here for the first time today, I just go right in the corpus usually. Okay. So the I answer that is the body of the article. To each thing it is befitting, which belongs to it by reason of its very nature, so to reason befits man, since that this belongs to him because he is of a rational nature. The very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysus. Hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness befits God, but it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysius. The good is diffusive of itself, is one of the famous phrases. Hence, it belongs to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature, and this is brought about chiefly by so joining created nature to himself that one uh, person is made up of these three, a word the word, soul, and flesh, as Augustine says. Hence it is manifest it's fitting that God should become incarnate. Who would be arguing in the Middle Ages that God should not fittingly become incarnate? That it, it, we should be monotheists but not believe in an incarnation. Jews and Muslims. Jews and Muslims, right. So he's trying to argue, what is something that you're, he says in Summa Contra when you're arguing with someone who really sees things very differently than you, where do you start? Well, you start with the thing that they agree with you on, and you move from there, logically, to the thing they disagree with you on, showing how the thing they agree with you on could be a place where they could get to the thing that you disagree on and change their minds. So what do we agree on with, say, just Jews and Muslims who don't believe in the Incarnation? The eternal attributes of God, including his goodness. Ah, but it is fitting that God, who did not have to create, should communicate being to us just out of the splendid goodness of it. This is not exactly correct to say as an equivalency, but I remember one of my friends in, in England once saying, I believe God created us simply because he thought we might jolly well like it. And it's not exactly the, it's not exactly the same thing as we might jolly well like it, but it, it's, um, it's, it's like, it, you know, God doesn't have to give being, but giving being is highly fitting given how infinitely good God is. It's sort of like being Mozart and never writing a symphony to be God and never create. Mozart didn't have to, didn't have to pr create these prodigious, beautiful symphonies and piano concertos and things, but he just started doing it when he was five as the kind of quasi-divine play. And so God is like the significantly greater, magnificent genius of being who just gives being diffusively as a kind of playful expression of his own magistral goodness. But for the same reason, he can also become human and suffer and die and rise again from the dead as humanity because God is capable of such powerful goodness and playfulness and redeeming wisdom. It's an argument from fittingness. Convenience is something between necessity, although we'll see he plays with that word in a minute, and arbitrary freedom. He did it because he had to do one of a thousand different things. He just chose to do this one. God's elective freedom. He decided to create, decided to become incarnate, get over it. It's the omnipotent will of God. Bow your head and submit. 
Or, well, he had to do it that way, if you think about it. I mean, God is basically kind of like my logic in a divine math problem, and I can see that basically if God's good, then God has to do what pertains to goodness. It pertains to goodness to create, and therefore God necessarily had to create. And he, okay. So now I've, got, I've kind of moved God into my system of logical necessities. It's neither the arbitrary or the necessary, it's the fitting. God did it freely, but he does it freely out of wisdom. So it's not just unstructured freedom, it's wise freedom. And the wisdom is not coerced, the wisdom is expressive of who God is in the serenity of his freedom and goodness, portending wisdom in all things. Do we have to say that it's also the best possible solution? No, not for Aquinas. Aquinas says that it's impossible for God to create a best of all possible worlds. And the reason is because God is infinite and any world God creates is finite. And so there's always a more perfect register of perfection possible on a scale between finitude and infinity. Because anything he creates, he could create something better because he's, always, he's the only thing infinite. To create a, 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 to create a world that would be infinitely good, you'd have to create, God would have to create himself. That doesn't make any sense. God can't create himself. So there's no possibility of a, per, a most perfect world. And in fact, there's some fittingness for him creating the world imperfectly, because then otherwise we won't be too tantalized by it. We'll, like it it's good enough that we can appreciate it as ex- expressive of God's own goodness, and it's limited enough that we keep going higher till we find God. Mm-hmm. He does say in one place, I believe, that God did create two things greater than which he could not have created in any world, which is he became human, the incarnation, and the mother of God, the divine maternity, because for God to be born of a human, of a creature, is something greater than which it's not, it's not easy to envisage how something greater than that could exist in any other world. So there are things in this world he's done that are of a high instance of perfection, but the world itself only exists in a scale of perfection that's relative. So we're in a very different world than Leibniz. Or Voltaire, reacting against Leibniz in Candide. Okay, was it necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word should become incarnate? Now notice that word necessity has just made its appearance. Now this is a magistral article. I answer that a thing can be said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life, Secondly, when the end is attained better and more conveniently, convenientius, uh, there that word is, as a horse is necessary for a journey. Now, you have to understand, one of the things, he's lecturing Dominicans. One of the things that, that, that um, the Dominicans chose to do in the Middle Ages to emphasize their vow of poverty was to travel everywhere on foot and not by horse. So when he says it's necessary in the way it's necessary to travel by horseback, these people are not traveling by horseback. They're walking everywhere on their feet. And so they really know the difference between the two. Aquinas is thought to have walked 14,000 miles in his life between all the places he was assigned. So it's a, this kind of necessity is not very necessary. If you look at it in terms of like the, it's a little bit of an inside joke here. In the first way, it's not necessary that God should come incarnate for the restoration of the human ra- ra- nature. That's like eating, right? Just like you and I will die if we do not eat food, but it wasn't necessary for God in that way to become human. 
For God, in, with his omnipotent power, could have restored the human race in many ways, but in the second way it was necessary, i.e. highly convenient. Uh, and he says, Augustine says, there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery. So we're all in the, we're in the order of high degrees of convenience or fittingness. Okay? Now, what happens next is super important. And if you don't remember anything else today, this is where you want to be most attentive. He's going to give reasons God became incarnate, and he's going to do it in two tables. The first table are is positive uh, uh, access to the good, advancement in the good. It's interesting. If you, this, is a, this is a very interesting kind of a register for thinking about how do you think about Christ as your Savior. Because the first thing he says is not he saved us from our sins. The first thing he says is he advances us in the good. And the second table is kind of how he removes the negative obstacles and saves us from our sins. So it's interesting. If you think about the two effects of grace as healing and elevation, he puts the healing second. He puts the first thing, elevation. Advancing us in the good toward God. It's very, very Dominican. God's grace moves us into out into God, and Christ became human to move us out into God. Christ is the way who shows us how to return to the Father. And then also, God heals us and removes the obstacles of sin and ignorance and, and, and saves us by helping us avoid the pitfalls of sin, death, and the devil. Okay, so let's look at these two tables. Now, this may be viewed with respect to our furtherance in the good. First, with regards to faith. Okay, so how's the first way we advance into God in the furtherance of the good? By theological virtue of faith, which we studied yesterday. And he quotes Augustine. In order that man might journey more trustworthily toward the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed human nature, established and founded faith. So it's more fitting for faith that the first truth that we believe in, God, should become human. We saw that the object of faith is the first truth, and that the first truth communicates itself. What if the first truth steps onto the stage of human history, becomes human, and speaks with a human voice, and gestures with human word, uh, gestures, and communicates who he is in his actions and sufferings? Right? Then we're in contact with the first truth in a more perfect or fitting way. Second, with regards to hope, which is thereby greatly strengthened, because if God became human then we, to save us, then we really ought to hope in God. I mean, you know, Sometimes as a priest, I see this in confession. People say, I've done something so bad, God can never love me again. And I point at the crucifix. I say, he died for you. The conversation is over. This is already resolved. He loves sinners. In fact, only because you are a sinner can you be qualified to be redeemed. You have the perfect qualification to be loved by God from the cross because you're a sinner. The most dangerous thing is to think you aren't one. Anyway, the point is, hope is really very possible in light of the incarnation. Third, with regards to charity, which is greatly enkindled by this, as Augustine says, what greater cause is there for the Lord's coming than to show us God's love for us? He loved us enough to become human, to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. So again, the conversation is you know, largely advanced as to whether God loves us. But that is a, an argument of fittingness. God didn't have to become incarnate or die or rise from the dead in his, in his human body to effectuate like a, a relationship of charitable love by grace. But he did it in a fitting way. Fourth, with regard to well-doing, in which he set us an example, here's the exemplary cause. Now we know best how to live because God has lived a human life among us. We know what the virtues are in an especial way when we look to 
the head and leader of our faith, who is Christ. Fifth, with regard to the full participation of divinity, which is the true bliss of man and the end of human life, which is bestowed on us by Christ's humanity. For Augustine says in a sermon, God was made man that man might be made God. Now that last argument is very important. That's the old Greek Eastern argument from divinization. Why did God become human? Athanasius says in his great work on the Incarnation, which you must read if you have not read, and which is a great book to give anyone who's interested in Christianity. Athanasius on the Incarnation, short book, perfect gift for the person who says, why are you a member of this bizarre ancient religion? You give them Athanasius. He argues, God became man that we might be united with God. Now, we don't become God in the sense that we become the divine nature. That would be blasphemous and wrong. But we see God and become united with God. But if God bothered to become human, then he could be bothered to make us, could he give us the beatific vision. For God to become human is a greater work for than him, him to beatify you or I. So it gives us great confidence that God would want to, and is serious about beatifying us, but by, because of the fact that we see God has become human. Now, he goes on to say, and here he's going to really, on this other, so Athanasius and Augustine on the divinization, or like on the first table, positive reason. The second table, he's going he's gonna, to, at the end, basically allude to Anselm. God became human to offer a perfect sacrifice of redemption to God for our sins. God became human to be the human being who made perfect atonement for human sin. So also it was useful for our withdrawal from evil, first because man is taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself, nor to honor him who is the author of sin. That's interesting. You know, that's not a very modern argument, but actually it's interesting when you think about the belief that, the kind of, think about it in a more Hobbesian way. Like, ah, Father, you know, I was raised Catholic, or I, I have friends who are Catholic, but, you know, the problem with all you Catholics is you believe human nature, and it's, you know, the state of nature is basically able to be redeemed and become good, but I mean, human beings are pretty selfish deep down. That's just the basic fact. There's no changing that. Okay? So, if God became human, then human nature is capable of transformation, and the Hobbesian view of the state of nature is, is problematic. It's true we're fallen creatures, but we're fallen and we can be restored and redeemed and elevated and sanctified. Right, so that's not preferring the devil to yourself, but that's preferring Hobbes to yourself. And they're not that far apart, actually, in a way. The point is to not see enslavement to evil in history as something that's a, a fait accompli, because that's, that's a vision of intellectual despair. Now that is a very tempting view. You just have to, if you ever get tenure and sit through a number of faculty meetings, you may come to believe that Hobbes is right and Aquinas is wrong. You know, it's just, you know, it's just a brutal world out there. But no, it's not true because he became human. Second, because he taught, he thereby taught how great is man's dignity, lest we should sully it with sin. And he quotes Pope Leo the Great. Learn, O Christian, thy worth, thy dignity, being made a partner of the divine nature. That's very important. You know, when John Paul II wrote his first encyclical uh, on the Redeemer of Man, he talked about how the incarnation makes us aware of the fundamental human dignity of each human being from conception to natural death and the importance of freedom as a freedom for uh, love and responsibility. And he did this in the face of the communist you know, ideology, which eventually was brought down in, in some real part because of his own witness in the solidarity, his union with his, his work with the solidarity movement in Poland. 
the point is interestingly that this idea that we know our dignity because of the incarnation can have a tremendous force in the contemporary world against evil and it's at the heart of the pro-life movement too right the dignity of each human being who is not just has an innate dignity because of nature but also has been chosen by god in christ it's a, it's a higher even dignity than just the principles of dignity of human nature which should be which are in some sense accessible to all human beings I know you've got this fellow, Peter Singer, he doesn't believe all that, but the point is, um, you know, there, the philosophical argument that there is a innate human dignity is correct. There's also a, a, a higher theological perspective, too. God having become human to save all human beings means that there's a, this vocation to holiness, to salvation, that reaches out to all human beings based on their dignity. Third, because in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God commanded in Jesus Christ through no merits of ours from before. Okay, so we don't merit our salvation. It stems from a, I mean, the first, the first grace is never merited. The first graces are always initiated by Christ, and Christ himself is an unmerited reality that God became human. So we don't save ourselves. We have a Savior. God saves us. Fourth, because of man's pride, which is a great stumbling block, clinging to God. So we see the humility of God, God himself, Became, became human in condescending self-giving. Fifth, in order to free man from the thraldom of sin, now a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. This is Anselm's argument in the Cordeus Oma, why did God become man? Hence it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. The basic argument, which we won't go into at length here, but he comes back to in question 46 and 48. Later, if you read Tertiary Parr's question 46 and 48, this Anselmian theory is developed in an original way by Aquinas with some differences from Anselm. And basically what the argument is, is not that God became human so that someone could suffer punishment in our stead. That's Calvin and Luther. It's that God became human so that a, a human being, our brother Christ, would have the fullness of charity and the perfection of obedience and would love God and obey God as man in our stead there where we fail to love God and fail to obey God. So where we have failed, he succeeds. Where we have been thwarted, he passes through to the Father. And in doing so, opens a channel for us because he restores us to an order of justice, a right order to God. Justice for Aquinas is fundamentally a right ordering of all things towards their right end. Well, our right ordering is toward God. But we're broken in some way that way, except by grace, healing our nature. So Christ came to restore order, and in that sense brought about a kind of new dignity and order and justice into the universe, which is infinite in kind because he's not only perfect in charity and his humanity, but most fundamentally it's infinite in kind because he's God. So when Jesus obeys humanly, there's a kind of infinite dignity and infinite majesty to it because the one who obeys humanly is also divine. Now that you can spend your long time thinking about. So it's a very deep idea that God should be the most human of all, that God should be the most humanly just of all, but that the one who's most human of all should also be infinite in dignity and in justice because he's also God. And that that is how God didn't have to do it but chose to do it fittingly so that we could be justified by grace. This makes, this makes justification by grace seem all the more interesting. We're participating in the grace of Christ in his headship and justice. We're living in this mystery of order reestablished in the new Adam, which has this infinite dignity that cloaks us in some mysterious way. We participate in. We don't become Christ, but we live by Christ 
and participate in his, his justice and goodness. That's just to show you that that line of thinking is there and it connects to other parts of the Summa. All right, Article 3. If man had not sinned, would God have become incarnate? This is the favorite argument, the famous article of argument. Do you know what I'm talking about? Who argued most famously, especially forcefully, that if... Was God, Scotus on the other side of this? Scotus is on the other side of this, who argued that God intended to become incarnate from the beginning of, in, of creation, independently of sin. <coughs> the universe exists for incarnation. Other people who held that view include Albert the Great, Aquinas' teacher. And in the 20th century, Karl Rahner, Joseph Ratzinger, Hans Urs von Balthasar. It's still ongoing, this debate. Aquinas doesn't just, so actually interesting, Bonaventure, to be fair to our nice Franciscan friends, Bonaventure, who was a friend of Aquinas, has held that God became incarnate because of sin or as a response to sin. Anyway, let's look how Aquinas handles this, because actually it's a little more subtle and deft than is often thought. I answer that there are different opinions about this question. For some say that even if man had not sinned, the son of man would have become incarnate, like, bon like uh, Albert the Great, my teacher. <laughs> Others assert the contrary, and seemingly our assent ought rather to be given to this opinion. I'm going down the road of Bonaventure. For such things as spring from God's will and beyond the creature's due can only be made known to us through the being revealed in the sacred scripture in which the divine will is made known to us. This is super, super, super important. Aquinas does not do theology of the, hypo of the uh, counter hypothetical counterfactual. Now, the hypothetical counterfactual is, what do you think God would have done if he hadn't done things the way he did? Do you know how you answer that question? You, take, you, go, you go get in an elevator, and you take it up to the highest story, which is the, into, all the way up into the divine essence. You get out of the elevator, you go walk around the divine essence, and you look at all the possible worlds, and you, you consult God, and you see what he would do in every case. And then you come back down, and you report to us what God would have done if he hadn't done things the way we'd done. Now, here's the problem. There is no such elevator. And even if you could get there, you still wouldn't be God. So you still wouldn't know what he and his elective freedom would have done. Um, I just had a question about the Jesus' humanity. And, um, so God is I, I, he's unchanging. Yep. So um, I've always, and I'm probably, I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this, but Jesus, um, when he was in heaven, before he became man, was he physically a man in heaven? No. God is, Christ is only the eternal word and he's only God. Jesus, the person, well, we'll come to this a little bit in the next article, but the person of the word does exist before the incarnation. The eternal person of the Son is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Son is not human. God became human only ever for the first time in the womb of Mary at conception, and before that, God was never human. There was no humanity of God before the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. But now... No, he wasn't man at all. It's not that he wasn't fully. He just in no way, under no... And this is the orthodox faith of the Catholic Church. It's not an opinion of Aquinas or my opinion. This is the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. God was never human before he became human in the womb of Mary. There are theologians in the 20th century who've argued some strange ideas like this, but he, no. now God is human forever. He didn't cease being human at the resurrection, right? I mean, Jesus is now God and man forever, per perennially. So in what sense was he unchanged? 
the divine nature is unchanged. The human nature is, is newly created. Jesus has a created human nature that's all entirely new from the first moment of his, his incarnation and conception, but his divine nature remains unchanged. His human nature is utterly relative to his divine nature and expressive of it and subsists in his divine person. So this is questions two, three, and four, five, and six. We're only gonna look at two, but it'll give you a head start. And you can read all about this in a, a book I wrote called The Incarnate Lord, which is a kind of study of Aquinas' metaphysics incarnation in the first chapter. And I related it to Maria's question. Was God sensible, uh, perceived through the senses before the incarnation? So with Adam and Eve or also Abraham and the like? To answer this question best, you, you should read in the Prima Pars, question 43, on the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit from all how God sent the invisible and visible missions to prepare for the incarnation. So the invisible missions are the sending of the, the Son, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Word and the Holy Spirit, illuminating the prophets before the time of Christ. Mm -hmm. So like Isaiah is illuminated by the Word, and the Holy Spirit sent to inspire him to write the book of Isaiah. But in addition, there can be visible missions or visible manifestations. And the, um, there are proleptic or typologically signifying visible signs given to the patriarchs and, the, and to Moses and to the prophets that anticipate and foreshadow the incarnation. So for example, when Abraham receives the visitor uh, with the three angels, you know, some take that as a Trinitarian revelation, but the earliest patristic commentary takes it as a, a Christophany, that it's a signifying the incarnation that is to come, and Abraham foresaw the incarnation. And they read this in part because Jesus himself says in, in John 8, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And they say, you're not yet 50 years old, how can you have seen Abraham? Okay, but this is because Jesus is referring himself as God, which he does in that very passage where he says, before Abraham was, I am. The I am being the name of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Right, so he refers to his own pre-existent eternal divinity from before becoming human. And he says, Abraham foresaw that I would come into the world in the incarnation. Now, the point I was just making, though, is that there's no counterfactual hypothetical theology really possible. Why? Simply because we don't have access to God's uh, counterfactual hypothetical plans. If God had not become incarnate because in response to the, if the fall had never happened, would God still become incarnate? Great question, but Aquinas is saying ascetically, you cannot answer it, really in the sense of absolute certitude. Because where does theology as a science take its first principles? From what God has revealed. But he's revealed to us primarily the truth about Christ's incarnation for our salvation. Now the Scotus response is this. Okay, St. Thomas, we see that we need to be hemmed in by the very givens of Revelation and not invent our own alternative theology. But what God has revealed in the incarnation of Christ is that he would have become incarnate anyway, because that was the plan from before the foundation of the world. He did become incarnate really in, in response to sin, but he was planning to do it all along. To which the Thomas says, are you really sure you're seeing that in Scripture? It sounds like you're projecting onto Scripture a, a, a front-loaded hypothetical counterfactual theology because you want to argue that the purpose of the creation was the incarnation. What's the purpose of creation for Aquinas? Why did God create angels and men? Sorry? Not, 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 that's not entirely. That's one fundamental reason, but there's a more ultimate one, which we've read already, we've looked at. Why did he create us? Fitting. Fitting, okay, sure. In view of what? 
That he might be glorified? No. Hmm? And what's the fullness of that look like? Well, yeah, and in how, what way will we participate in the fullness of the Trinitarian life? How will we achieve the fullness of the Trinitarian life? The beatific vision. God created the creation for the beatific vision of the Holy Trinity. So in the end, the fundamental mystery undergirding why God created everything is the Trinity. And Aquinas says sometimes the common good of the whole universe is God. God is himself the ultimate reason for everything existing. If you say the universe exists for the incarnation, what's the ultimate end of the universe? It looks a lot like humanity. It's kind of anthropocentric. God created the universe to become human. He might jolly well like, it didn't create because he might jolly well like being human. He created us because he not only thought we would jolly well like it, but he might jolly well like being one of us. See, just a whole thing. In a way, if you, if, you, if you try to make, create polar tensions, you don't have to. You can read Scotus and Aquinas' as more convergent, and there's a, there's a huge body of, not, of like, thinking on this. And there's lots of other posi- like, it, wedding positions that wed the two. But if you want to make it, like, if you want to make it sharp, uh, in a kind of Thomist optic, God created the world, it seems, from Revelation, in order that we might be united to God by the beatific vision so that we would enjoy Trinitarian life. So God created us that we might enjoy becoming like him or being united with him. As we're in the Scotus position, he created us so that he might enjoy being one of us. And perfecting the, as what Scotus argues is, the adoration of Christ, Christ's worship of the Father, is the most perfect creaturely reality. Aquinas doesn't think Christ worshiped. He thinks he prayed, but he doesn't worship, because worship is proper to a creature, acknowledging its dependence on God. But Christ is not a creature. He has a created human nature that began to be in the womb. But he is God, the second person of the Trinity, having a created nature. He's not a creature. And insofar as he proceeds from the Father, doesn't he depend on the Father? No, not in the order of cause. He's not caused by the Father to exist in the sense of... He, in, because the Father can't choose to create or not create the Son. What we say in the Creed is he's begotten, not made. In Greek, the word is not created. So it's not creation in the sense of God creating the eternal son. The father doesn't choose to, to beget the son. He just is father eternally because he is he who begets the son, inspires the spirit. So the son does receive all he is from the father, but of necessity, you might say. That's just who God is. It's a Trinitarian mystery of the communication of divine life. In what sense is the presence of free will Why didn't he just beatify us from the start? Yeah. Well, Aquinas says he couldn't create a creature that is not God. He can't, create, he can't create himself. And he can't create a creature that's not God that doesn't have potency in the will. Because our will, because it's created, moves from potency to act. We're not, we're not able to just be pure act. Only God is pure act. So when he creates a spiritual creature, there's going to be potency in the act of the will. And the will has to consent through emotion, therefore. And the motion has to happen through the intellect consenting or not to the truth. Now he says, therefore, it's not naturally possible that he created a man or an angel in beatitude and allow the creature to pass from potency to act according to its natural mode without in some way violating the principles of nature. There remains a question, and it's a a traditional question that Thomists disagree about, I mean, fight with each other about, argue about. 
Could God by miracle, again, we're in a hypothetical counterfactual, but given what we know about the universe, could God by miracle have created everyone in the beatific vision, despite the fact that it might have violated or transcended the principles of our nature? My own view is he could have, because God omnipotently could snap his fingers and create a bunch of creatures in the beatific vision. But it, it would have been deeply unfitting because it would take away the whole notion of being the creature that moves itself through free consent of knowledge and love to its final end. And so in a certain way, God rightly, or we can suspect that God fittingly created us so that we would be freely consenting as persons in, based on our personal dignity. So being in the Imago Dei as angels and men, we have the personal dignity to consent freely to the truth. And given that we're creatures, that has to happen through a process. Okay, I continue. All Aquinas has said so far is, be careful about trying to derive knowledge of what God would do, other than through what, you know, let's look at what scripture says he did and why he did it. Hence, since everywhere in the sacred scripture the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason of the incarnation, it is more in accordance with this to say that the work of the incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin, so that had sin not existed, the incarnation would not have been. And yet the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. Ah, okay. So what he says is like, if you look at the creed, what do we say in the creed? For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. So we actually, I mean, you've you got to be a little committed to the creed. The church, you know, I don't think the Holy Spirit would allow us to err on so fundamental thing as the creed. And the creed says that the reason God became human was because for us men and for our salvation. So it could have just been for us men and no salvation, if, if there was no need of salvation? In print, well, so that's a question. Could the creed be open to a Scotus interpretation? The Scotus have all kinds of sophisticated arguments this direction. That's why it's the favorite, one of the favorite arguments. This is, you can keep lobbing the tennis ball. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting intellectual exercise. And, but Aquinas, notice Aquinas says, the power of God is not limited, so had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. So he doesn't deny he could have. But he says, well, he says, first of all, we can't know for sure. That's the first thing, it's agnosticism. I actually think that's the most important thing about the article. We don't know. I think that's the most important thing to take away from this article. We don't know. Would God become incarnate? Have we not said? We don't know. Thinking you can know might be itself a problem. The second thing is, um, what, the, what we are told is he became, hum he became human to save us. And the third thing we're told is, well, we know he could do it if he wanted to, but we don't know if he'd want to. We do know in this world we live in, in this concrete economy, he seems to become human to save us. Now, there's middle positions that take, so, for example, the Carmelites of the sixth, 17th century, I think, the Baroque Carmelite scholastics called the Salamanticensis. It's a school of about, like, five Carmelites who were brilliant and commented Aquinas, the whole summa. There's a new book coming out from an American priest from Catholic University Press about this soon. I think it's CUA Press. Um, they argued that God did become human principally, as Aquinas says, to free us from sin. But he did so in a way that fulfills the universe perfectly in a way that would never have happened had we not sinned. And in that sense, the ultimate plan of God from the beginning was not to cause sin in any way, but to permit it in order to bring about a yet greater good which occurred through the incarnation, passion, resurrection of Christ. So in a certain way, they make the whole purpose of the universe 
the mystery, the Paschal mystery, and the glorification of Christ's humanity, which is a more perfect world than if we'd had a Scotist incarnation without death, resurrection, and glorification. And some Thomists have argued against that position, that that makes the experience of evil, sin, death, and the damnation of some a part of God's plan to perfect the universe. There's a more modest position that I must admit I, I hold to, which is that of Cajetan. And Cajetan says, great commentator, we, saw, we walked over his tomb underneath the cardboard. Anyway, the plywood. But anyway, um, Cajetan argues that God became incarnate to save us from sin and only permitted or tolerated sin. He didn't wish it in any way. He came incarnate to save us from it. But in doing so, he also in some way perfected the universe in ways he, might, he, would, he never would have had we never sinned. So it's not that he intended the, to kind of make use of sin from the beginning, but having tolerated its entrance into the world, he then did in some ways a yet even greater work of mercy and goodness. And yet, in the Cajetanian view, you can still retain the idea that we lost a lot. There's both loss and gain to quote Newman. So it, we, it could have been better had we never sinned. God doesn't reward sin with a better world. It could have been better. And yet in other ways, God made it better in some respects that it wouldn't have been. I mean, for example, the Eucharist. If God had not become incarnate, if we had not been the Passion, we wouldn't have the Eucharist. There's more grace in the Eucharist than Adam and Eve would ever have had access to had they stayed in a state of grace. And yet the Eucharist is received by us who are frail sinners, and it doesn't, have, it doesn't irradiate our lives so that all of us become Francis of Assisi. But Francis of Assisi might be something greater than would have ever existed had there never been a fall. Now, a lot of this is very speculative, and don't wait for the church to come along and give you some kind of definitive doctrinal declaration about this. They're going to let the schools of theology fight about this till the end of time, because it's actually a kind of holy warfare, a battle about thinking about the beauty of what God's done. And it's nice that there's all these different ideas, although the best ones are always Thomist. Okay. <laughs> How are we doing on time? We started at what, 9.30? Yeah, we're going away. Okay, um, I'm going to skip Article 4. You can read it on your own. Article 5. Was it fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning of the human race? Now we get into these time questions. These are, these are, these need to be, 5 and 6 need to be rewritten. You need to rewrite them. You need to become theologians and rewrite them. Because they're, they're, I mean, they're still right, there's still something right in them. But the point is, now we'd ask the question, like, um, if the universe is 14 and a half or 13 and a half or 14 billion years old, and then there's like a long evolutionary process from, you know, single-celled organisms five billion years ago to an eventual emergence of things we call homo sapiens but didn't yet have spiritual souls, and then you have ensoulment and hominization as state of grace, and then you have something called the fall, and you have this long history for whatever it is, maybe 100,000, maybe 150,000, maybe 50,000 50, years of the human adventure of human spiritual animals, and then you finally have this kind of, in, amidst all the primitive religious traditions of humanity, the emergence of this kind of more focalized Hebraic uh, religion inspired by God in which there emerges eventually the reality, the kind of truths about monotheism and eschatology and then finally God himself becomes human. Why did God do it under this, you know, for, over such a long interesting process? And then the other question is, when is this all going to come to an end? 
I mean, how long is this going on? It's going on for hundreds of years, for millions of years. I mean, are we going to crash into the sun? What's going to happen to the whole physical universe? What's the plan for the cosmos here? What kind of realistic expectations should we have in light of the kind of cosmos and historical setting we, we exist in? Right, the big kind of, what is the, you might say it this way, what is the cosmological Christology? Or what is the cosmology of Christology? You, you've perhaps heard of Teilhard de Chardin. So Teilhard de Chardin is this 20th century Jesuit who discovered a so-called Peking man, one of the earlier, at the time they thought one of the earlier uh, homo sapiens in China. But he was a Jesuit who held these kind of speculative theories about evolution and creation, evolution, grace, and what he called the omega point of the universe, which is Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the omega. Now, there's lots of problems with your heart, I mean, as a metaphysician. It's, like, it's more like intuitive poetry. He almost came under condemnation. He doesn't really distinguish nature and grace very carefully. There's all kinds of problems about seeing the difference between man and other animals. He doesn't distinguish between living things and non-living things that very clearly. So there's lots of questions. It's not like, he's not like a role model on the, on the, in the conceptual details. But there's other people like Charles DeConnick, who was a great Canadian Thomist metaphysician in his book Cosmos, who is going in the same way in a more technical and more interesting way. And these people are starting to think about like modern cosmology and Christology. You know, so interestingly, DeConnick argues about how the Virgin Mary and her divine maternity is the kind of epitomal uh, expression of what it is to be a creature in, in a context of the larger evolutionary process as expressive of the Holy Trinity. Like the evolutionary process is expressing kind of playfulness of the divine trinity and then the emergence of man and then the Virgin Mary is like this epitomizing uh, example of what is to be creature. Well, it's interesting. He's very brilliant, Charles de Conte, very brilliant man, a uh, great metaphysician. So the point is, though, like Aquinas is giving us some interesting suggestions, major questions that confront us if we want to think seriously about integration of theology, philosophy, and modern science. Anyway, why didn't he become incarnate immediately? I answer that since the work of the incarnation is principally ordained to the restoration of the human race by blotting out sin, it is manifest that it is not fitting for God to become incarnate at the beginning of the human race before sin, for medicine is given only to the sick. Nor was it fitting that God should become incarnate immediately after sin. So now you see he's putting a little more teeth, that first paragraph, a little more teeth in his idea that God became incarnate. So he's not going to become incarnate right away for Adam and Eve before they fall, because that's not the purpose of the creation. Adam and Eve were called originally into friendship with God to be beatified in the, holy, in the life of the Holy Trinity. Now, you know, if they, he says elsewhere, if they'd had children in a state of grace, they would have all been conceived immaculately, free from sin, and in a state of grace. You would not have needed baptism. What we, the, the effects of grace we receive through baptism and other graces besides, like preservation from death or the promise of immortality in some form, would have been commuted to all of them. Right? So, because we felt... So that's interesting because human sexuality would have transmitted grace. So the, 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 it wouldn't have been a sacrament of marriage. The actual act of intercourse between the married people in charity, in, in communion with the Trinity, would have communicated personhood and grace to live in the Trinity. So the communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would have through organic natural family life in grace have communicated communion of persons, of human persons with each other in the family, and of human persons with God, the Holy Trinity. The church would have just been the human natural community of family and clan and city. And Aquinas thinks there would have been political life, but the political life would have been basically the church. Now, that's interesting. All these nostalgias that remain in the human person, to have the family be the ultimate place of contact with the divine, 
or to have human sexuality be the primal sacrament or the primal gift of transcendence or to have the political community be the church and replace the church. This stuff is all interestingly like kind of Adamic echoes that are not rightly understood because you're not seeing the whole picture. We could only have ever done any of that with grace. And having lost grace, the picture is more complicated, alas. So now the family, you're born in original sin, you need baptism, marriage is tough, you need the sacrament of matrimony and confession and communion. You have to die. So you know there's affinitude to what politics can accomplish. Original sin is rife in the political community and its effects. So it's really hard. The church is different than the state. And the eschatological horizon is not going to be realized only in and through or even primarily through politics. There's limits to what the natural good can be accomplished in the political realm. Right? So a lot, a lot more complicated world. Okay. Um, so he wouldn't have become incarnate for Aquinas in the, at the beginning because they hadn't yet fallen. Nor is it fitting that God should become incarnate immediately after sin. And this is very interesting. And this is hard. Here's a hard teaching. First on the account of man's sin, which had, become, which had come of pride. Hence, man was to be liberated in such a manner that he might be humbled and see how he stood in need of a deliverer. If you want to be open to the mercy of God, you probably do need to know a little bit about your own misery. All right, so here's the idea of God abandoning the human being to his own free will. You want to go off and live without God? Okay, we'll see how that works for you. Go out, test it. Yeah, do it. Yeah, we'll see how that works. Go break your face. I'll see you in the operating room. And you say, well, that's what God's basically saying is good for the children of Adam and Eve. Like, that they, there's a certain side in which the divine pedagogy works through human beings becoming aware of their own misery, and that curbs their pride and makes them open. Would that we were only talking about other people when we talk about that, right? But we know what, full well this has a lot to do with our own, our own situations. Hence, in the, on the words of Galatians 3.19, being ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator, the gloss says, with great wisdom it was so ordered that the Son of Man should not be sent immediately. First of all, God left man under the natural law and with the freedom of his will. Now, notice, that's interesting, right? Human beings without grace, we, we might say, see, there's a certain kind of confident Catholic rational, rationality. I didn't say rationalism, but rationality about the natural law. You say, well, look, we, let's argue in the public square for the natural law. Because that's what's true for all people. And it's true, like even very people who like grasp the natural law very poorly can be helped by your arguments. And I would add this, God the Holy Spirit can work through your arguments to the natural law. And some people even become Catholic because Catholics make good natural law arguments. So I don't want to belittle arguing about the natural law. But notice he's here saying he leaves them to the merely to the natural law, which they're gonna basically fail at obeying a lot. So if you, so like the natural law is important and we do make arguments about it. And also if you're an Augustinian as Aquinas is, you should expect people to fail a lot at observing the natural law, to, observe, to fail at grasping it and fail at observing it, which is not a reason to abandon it, but it's a reason to have great sobriety about appealing to it and employing it. There's two errors here. Oh, people are so fallen in an Augustinian world. We shouldn't even like appeal to the natural law. That's kind of the more line in extreme form of Karl Barth, who rejects the idea of natural law altogether. But lots of there are some Catholics who are hyper-Augustinian who say no point appealing to natural law, complete waste of time. And the other side would be, we'll just get people up and running on the natural law. Everything will be going smoothly, and then we can propose grace because they can at least live the natural law. But that position, Aquinas actually argues in Prima Secundae, Question One Hundred Nine, Articles Four and Five is Pelagian. 
because we know, because of the church's condemnations of Pelagius and the teachings of St. Paul is interpreted by St. Augustine and the whole tradition, the human beings left their own powers under the, their fallen human nature, can know a lot about the natural law, but also often fail to know it well and s certainly always fail to fully observe it. And Paul says this, there's a law in each man's conscience and he fails, under, he's condemned by it. To a certain degree, he's more or less conscious of the natural law and he, he always fails this to a certain extent. So he says, you know, you cry out for, at the beginning, at the end of this phrase, we, uh, that he might cry out for a physician and beseech the aid of grace. Second, on account of the furtherance and good, whereby we proceed from imperfection to perfection. And so the apostle says, yet that was not first which is spiritual, but which is natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. The first man was of earthly, the second man from heaven, heavenly. Now, if you look at the deep reasons for this, this is actually much more about the protozoa than you think. Or the 14-year-old cosmology, 14-billion-year-old cosmology. What he's saying is, once God is, what's, what's different about us than angels? Bodies. Bodies. Bodies means you live in a material cosmos. But to live in a body means you live pro according to a kind of historical narrative of, 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 of progress and the, the progressive unfolding of the potencies of the soul and with that, the potencies of culture. See, someone who understood this very well in a very deep way that I think a lot of people don't see as necessarily being very Catholic, but I think he was uber Catholic in showing this, is J.R.R. Tolkien. Because in The Lord of the Rings, you have all these, like, at the very first pages. It's like, well, this is the history we have of what happened that I'm about to chronicle. There are other histories of it. Um, there are different legends. There are different stories. Human beings live in time. You notice how Tolkien doesn't just say it's okay that we kind of come to a progressive, slow understanding of our situation in time through long histories. He says it's like something we even can rejoice in because it shows we're not God, but that God is governing us through this very broad field of history. Right, so here he's saying things happen progressively. It's part of being human. Accept it. Your own sanctification happens progressively. Changes in culture and the sanctification of culture happens progressively. There are, there are advances. There are regresses. Uh, and if you go backwards into the scientific stuff, you know, God set up the material world, if you can accept me to use a slightly artificial metaphor, setting up a stage. God set up a stage for humanity over a very slow time, but he, to do that, he had to create material, a material world, a vast material world, and a vast set of organic causes of living things that work through these, you know, long biological processes. Right, so there's, God is, paradoxically, because God is eternal, he seems not to be threatened by vast stretches of time because he has lots of time on his hands, to speak somewhat metaphorically. If you're eternal, <laughs> you have a lot of time. And so God has put us in the time in a way that you know, we're kind of stretched by it. Sometimes Aquinas, Augustine talks about in the Confessions as a, the torture rack of time, the distinctions of history. You know, we're, we want immediate awareness and immediate rectification of things, but we're living in and through time. It's part of our, our life and drama. Okay, third, on account of the dignity of the incarnate word, from the words of Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, and the gloss says, gloss is a medieval commentary, on, it was one of the medieval commentaries in scripture. The greater the judge who was coming, the more numerous was the band of heralds who ought to have preceded him. And so it's fitting, given human beings religious ignorance, there should be all the prophets in the mystery of Israel. What did it, what's the primary gift they prepared for, uh, well, monotheism, and more than monotheism, the idea of communion or covenant with God by grace. 
Fourth, lest the fervor of faith should cool by the length of time, for charity of many will grow cold at the end of the world. Because Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Right, so he becomes incarnate at the beginning, and then it's just a long story downhill. Just a little bit of melancholic thinking there. But, since we, but notice what Aquinas said, since we know at the end there will be a lot of apostasy. Um, we have plenty of time for apostasy still. We don't need to hurry on our way to it by having God become incarnate right at the beginning. So we'll just have a long history of apostles. And then let's just finish with this other article. Should the incarnation have been put off to the end of the world? He came too soon. We're not impressed by the results. We want God to come incarnate and like overwhelm everybody. I want the whole world to be Catholic or else I can't really stand being Catholic. I don't like this already not yet stuff. God's already come into the world and not yet is fully recognized. This is not fair to me. I shouldn't have to live in this existential plight. I shouldn't have to have people who think I'm foolish or don't agree with me. It should be sort of a universal consent to the truth. Jesus, if you're really serious about this, you should overwhelm people. If you don't overwhelm people, I don't think I can really believe in you. I don't know if the incarnation really happened, because if the incarnation had really happened, we'd all be overwhelmed with it. We're not all overwhelmed with it, so it didn't really happen. Or it didn't happen fittingly. It wasn't wise. It's that kind of idea. Okay. I answer as it was not fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning, so it's not fitting that the incarnation should put off till the end of the world. Now, why is Aquinas doing all this? Well, because this is the way it has happened, and now he's seeking as a theologian to understand it. He's humbly going up, he's following after God, like a child running after his father, and thinking about, why did my father do it this way? Okay, for a good reason. For this is shown first from the union of the divine and human nature. For as it has been said, perfection precedes imperfection in time in one way, and contrawise in another way. Imperfection precedes perfection. For in that which is made perfect from being imperfect, imperfection precedes perfection in time. Whereas in that which is the efficient cause of perfection, perfection precedes imperfection in time. So if God is going to make saints and really start making some perfect people turn out, like the little flower and the great Bernard, and the con conversion of the soldier from Spain, Ignatius, and the, the, poor, the poverello of Assisi, and the sublime preacher, Dominic, armed with, cloaked with the office of the word. If he's going to get around to doing all that, he's going to need to create a principle of perfection, in, bring about a principle of perfection to sanctify humanity in time. Now, in the work of the incarnation, both concur, that's to say, what was imperfect becomes perfect, but also what is perfect comes into the world to efficiently render the human race perfect. For by the incarnation, human nature was raised to its highest perfection, and in this way it was not becoming that the incarnation should take place at the beginning of the human race. And the word incarnate is the efficient cause of the perfection of human nature, as John says in the prologue, of his fullness we have all received. And hence the work of the incarnation ought not to have been put off to the end of the world, but the perfection of glory to which human nature is to be finally raised by the word incarnate, will be at the end of the world. So this is beautiful. This idea that why did God become incarnate at the, in the midst of time and still leave so many people not believing, leave it also, okay, for the, the mystery of the church, like our life, our mystery, to receive the fullness of Christ incarnate and to live the mystery of Christ in our own lives in the midst of a field of contention, to live for the truth, to live for charity, and to be the heralds of the gospel in our various states of, of life, to be those people who try to live in the perfection of Christ and who become his friends, to live friendship in, with Christ in this world. 
Like that's a very meaningful thing to do. And what's interesting is he who came not to just hit reset, but made himself subject to the sins of man and to suffering and to death, leaves us over also as his disciples to those same benighted forces of humanity in history, but also gives us the possibility in the midst of that struggle to bear witness to the faith in a very profound way through our own life of faith, hope, and charity and our own witness and our own confession of our sins and our own union with Christ as our Savior. And so there's like this drama of human existence of sanctification that can take place only because God became human in time and in the way he did. I won't read the second and third reasons. I think the, fir- the, the first one is, is sufficient. But I mean, I think it's very, it's very interesting to think about what Aquinas is doing here in trying to, he's trying to understand what God is up to. Why is God doing it the way he's doing it? What is so fitting about it? And notice it's, Aquinas is pretty good at admitting the opacity. I don't know if I can know what else he might have done. I don't think I can know what else he might have done. I think we did it because of our sinfulness. He could have done it another way. It's fitting that he did it to unite us to the divine and to save us from our sins. If he'd done it immediately, it might make more sense in some respect, but I can see why he didn't, because it leaves us to learn our misery and live according to the natural law, and then then we can receive the gratuity of grace with more recognition and see the gift that is salvation as a gift. And at the same time, he doesn't just save us, swoop in and save us all at the end without letting us cooperate, but he enters into, as it were, the field of battle, and he asks us to become his companions in arms, his friends, and he lets us participate in his mission and his salvation and be sanctified. So I can see why God doesn't do it just at all at the very end. And yet there is something coming at the end which will be definitive and, re- and resolve everything. Now I think all this is actually still quite tenable. I just think it's good to think about the cosmological backdrop in our own era where there's more questions. You could see how you could extend this question in our contemporary moment. 